Hi, everyone. Welcome to HR Works, brought to you by BLR. I'm your host, Steve Bruce. HR Works provides clear, relevant, actionable information on topics that matter to HR professionals. When you're armed with best practices and strategies to attract, retain, and engage top talent and deliver exceptional value to your organization, HR works. Talent management has moved to the front burner for most organizations as the economy has improved, and recruiting, especially of top talent, has become challenging. For some help, we've asked Maggi Graziano, CEO of Keen Alignment, to join us. Maggi is a leading talent expert, talent management expert, a sought-after keynote speaker, and author of The Wealth of Talent and Millennial Heiress. She has over three decades of real-world, hands-on experience in hiring strategy and talent development. A pioneer in her field, she has developed a talent strategy system that gives business leaders the actionable steps to align their corporate strategy with their people strategy, thereby maximizing employee effectiveness and engagement and developing high-performing teams who consistently elevate the customer experience. A certified co-active executive coach, certified employee retention specialist and trainer, and an organizational development and talent architect, Maji has been a guest speaker at HR and business conferences and seminars where she's captivated audiences with her presentations on cultural alignment, conscious hiring, 21st century leadership, and talent strategy. And listeners, I'll just point out that Maji will be featured speaker at BLR's upcoming HRDA 2018 conference in Savannah, March 8th and 9th. And there's a $100 discount for HR Works listeners that I'll tell you about at the end of the podcast. So, Maji, welcome to HR Works. Thank you for having me. So, to give us a framework for looking at talent management and engagement, you utilize data and science to measure organizational leadership and individual effectiveness and ineffectiveness. Can you tell us a little about that? Yes. Um, so I started using assessments when I owned a search firm and a staffing firm, high-level professional staffing firm, and we began using assessments to benchmark the level of, of skill, the level of competency we needed in the leaders we placed. And then when I sold that business and moved into consulting, we continued to use those leadership assessments, which measures effectiveness in 79 areas that are important. So the categories are leading from a vision, inspiring others, developing others, serving others, developing yourself, and um systems thinking. And then those 79 categories roll up to those major categories. And it really directly links to performance on the job, specifically getting work done through people. And so that's the leadership part of the assessment. But we also use organizational health check, which measures organizations' effectiveness in 11 key areas strategy, marketing, employee engagement, leadership, um, alignment to the vision, and and other aspects like that. 
And then we also use a cultural, an ideal culture, culture survey where organizations have an opportunity to say what they want as an ideal culture. And then there's another survey that measures what they actually have compared to what they said they wanted and then gives them a gap analysis. And then that's where the consulting comes in, right? To help people understand how to fill that gap. So we do organizational health checks, ideal, actual culture, leadership effect, efficacy. We also use when we set up recruiting programs with organizations, we use something called the, the big five, which allows recruiting recruiters to get more people through the pipeline and take, let's say, what could be 200 candidates down to 40 who actually have the right stuff to do the job. And then you begin doing phone screens. So all of these assessments save time, effort, and bring real data, unbiased data to the table so that you can start to do mapping and correlations and benchmarking. So we also use the old school interviewing and focus groups and take all of that information and we start to correlate the data so that it becomes much more, um, less of a person's opinion and more of, look at, we see these strains through the organization. We see these patterns through the organization. So needs assessment, data analytics is critical whether we're setting up culture programs, recruitment programs, whether we're going in to create an, a brand, a, a talent management brand, whether we're doing talent strategy, because we need to know the impact of what they're currently doing. And we need to know the results and the measures of what they want to accomplish by putting in whatever program they, they put in. And we use data to benchmark and data to measure and then more data uh, to to actually measure the user experience, which would be the employees and or the candidates. Well, it sounds like a very thorough and practical approach. Um, could you give us an example of how you work with leaders to grow their awareness of organizational effectiveness and what's possible by improving it? Yeah. So specifically with leaders, we, we, work with organizations that actually say something needs to change. We need to improve our employment brand. We need to, we need to improve our culture. We need to be the kind of place that people feel inspired to work at. And so often one of our first steps with that is doing a level set. And in the level set, we have frank and real conversations about what we learned in the data collection. And we, we literally take them through a process where they get to learn about the seven levels of personal group and organizational effectiveness. And we have them experience what it is to be in hopelessness, fear, and frustration, and how the people that work for their companies experience the day-to-day of working in an organization like that. In hopelessness, fear, and frustration, things don't get done. Timelines are elongated. There's gossip. There's morale issues. There's people infighting between departments and management uh, issues all the time. On the other hand, we also show them about the and teach them about the four levels of effectiveness, which are 
courage, engagement, innovation, and synchronicity. And in those environments, in organizations like Zappos, uh, where they have innovation and engagement happening, people are much more free to be who they want to be and to get the work done. And there's, there's more of a meritocracy where you are managed based on merit and performance rather than maybe who likes you. And so there's much more fairness, there's much more openness, there's much more power and freedom. And so these seven levels of effectiveness we use as a baseline and as a teaching and as a roadmap to empower these leaders to create the kind of culture, to create the kind of employee engagement, to create the kind of inspiring, engaging environment that people are demanding to work for today. We also use a system called operating states where we teach them and coach them about what happens in the stages of formulation, concentration, momentum, breakthrough, and sustainability, much like the stages of a high-performance team, forming, storming, norming, and performing. We actually break it down so people, again, see a roadmap and they can correlate their actions and the results they're getting, whether they're good or bad, to the stages of operational effectiveness that they're at. And then, of course, we teach them and coach them and give them tools to get to the next level. The the last area, it's really not the last, but it's the last I'm going to talk about today, is the ideal culture. When organizations say, I want this kind of brand, I want this kind of culture, I want people standing in line to apply for our company, I want great people to not want to leave and not take those recruiting calls, then we have to look at, well, saying you want a culture is one thing. Digging down and declaring the behaviors, the productive behaviors that are required to create that culture, that's a whole different story. So what we do is we dig down and we excavate and we say, what are the behaviors that are going to drive that culture? What are the attitudes that are going to drive that culture? What are the the ways of being that are going to drive that culture? How do we talk to people? How do we engage people? How do we correct people? How do we set up performance expectations? And then we actually do deep 21st century leadership development with those leaders and coach them through their, let's say, constraints or barriers to getting there. Because let's face it, everybody has a good side. Everybody has a bad side. And when people are not at their best or they're overstressed or they're under under rested, or they haven't eaten, or they've got 19 deadlines, they're overloaded, they don't show up as their best self. The amygdala, which is this thing in our brain, reacts in fight or flight mechanism, and it sends out cortisol and adrenaline that has our mind, our thinking brain, our executive brain shut down. So what shows up is our reaction, our bad behavior, And what we do with these leaders is we teach them how to identify those breakdowns or constraints or poor ways of being. We bring self-awareness to it. We give them mechanisms, tools, and coaching to get themselves back on track and get their prefrontal cortex thinking. Because nobody wakes up in the morning as a leader and says, I want to go to work today and be a jerk. They just are unaware that they're doing it. And 
what we've seen from our research and Gallup and, and, and Sherman, you name it, everybody's got the same research. The number one driver of employee engagement, first and foremost, is mission, vision, and values that people feel aligned. The second driver is that they trust leadership to be those values, to model that behavior. And that's most often, most often where the breakdown occurs. And last, because you asked about leadership, think in the most recent Gallup survey, it said only 18% of leaders in organizations today actually have the skills and the competencies to lead the new generation of worker who wants to feel engaged, inspired, and fully bought into the organizations they're working for. So I know that was a long-winded answer, um, and I hope it made a difference. Well, but it sounds like a very in-depth and uh, meaningful approach, and it sounds like 82% of uh, leaders could could use it. <laughs> Speaking of... Um, of engagement, if, if managers want to drive engagement to inspire their employees to higher levels of effectiveness, what do you recommend? Well, first and foremost, look at the mission, the vision, and the values. Because that, if that is truly, and that's what the surveys are saying, the number one driver, people go to work for their reasons, not our reasons. So if I want to drive, let's say Hannah, who's apprenticing me right now, it's not about where I see her in my organization. It's where she sees her career, where she wants to go, and it's how I can help her get there. So whether she's with me for five years or two years, she's a millennial also, so we know that you know, all the, 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 the information about what millennials want and need, but it's about her. It's what's in it for her. And then how can I help her get there? And in the process, she will be much more engaged at my company because she'll get that I have her back. I have her best interest in mind. And I give her the kind of work that bridges the gap from where she is today to where she wants to be tomorrow. So the first is people need to be connected to the mission and vision. The second driver of engagement is people need to feel that they have a high quality of life. That's work life. That's personal life. Back in the day, when I first started my job, nobody cared about my home life or that I had a sick kid or that I was potty training and I was going to be late for work. The way we were treated in 1982, if we were late for work, there was punitive damage. We were taken off of rotation for candidates. It was back in the staffing industry. And that won't work these days. If you're not concerned as a manager for your employees, son, husband, father, mother, what's going on in their life? Uh, did they get a good vacation? Have they had time off? People feel you don't care. And when people feel you don't care, they feel like a cog in the wheel. And when they feel like a cog in the wheel, they give only what they need to give. When people feel you care, when they feel you have their back, when they feel that they know they've put in, 10 extra hours for, for the company to get a project done that you say, hey, you know what, Hannah, take a day off on me so you can get yourself recalibrated. So mission and vision, work and, and life balance or navigation, people need to feel they have a good future. 
They need to feel that they're working towards their own personal compass, their personal vision. And therefore, we need to find out what's important to them from their own future. And then we need to help bridge that gap, as I said before. They need to feel the company that they work for cares about safety. Is it whether it's a heavy manufacturing or banking, or it's a, a parking lot in San Francisco? People need to k- feel that you care that they can get out of their car, get to their office, and be safe. Um, excitement. They need to feel energized about the work that is being done, not just the big work like the company work, but what they're doing. And they need to see the connection between the daily tasks that they execute and the big picture. And that's called conveying role value. So managers have to sow the seeds so people see the end result of what they're doing and not assume that people just get it. Well, they get it. They're in sales. And therefore, if they bring in more sales, we get to change the world by putting solar panels on every single organization in the world. No, we have to teach them. We have to tell them, we have to fill those gaps in for them and show them how it matters. They need to feel respected. I was just at a company yesterday debriefing the results of their organizational health check. And one of the feedback was no trust of managers. They trusted the executive, the one executive, and there's five. They trusted one, and this is across the board, 300 people, but they didn't trust the managers. And what they said in the focus groups is that the managers correct them in public and they're requesting that they change their approach. And if something's wrong, take them aside. And that's all about respect. People in every generation want to be respected. The bad news is that in the 80s and in the 70s and even in the 90s and the 2000s, it was okay to shame and blame people at work. Even though it wasn't really okay, it was acceptable. Well, with this whole new Me Too movement, and, and it's, it is a catalyst, there's, whether it's gender or not, it's going to become unacceptable to chastise people in public, to berate people, to shame people, to blame people. And managers need to learn to respect people, even when they are frustrated, upset, disappointed, overtired, overloaded. They need to find a way to correct in private, and to build up in public. So, so far we have mission and vision, work, life balance, good future, safety, excitement, respect. And then people need to feel that they're recognized and appreciated and valued for their unique contribution at work. And this is a big piece. Sean Anker talks about it with the happiness advantage this is a big piece that's missing. But if, if you're in a job or you were raised up as a leader to point out what's wrong, your neuropathways in your brain are about saying what's wrong, what's missing, what, what's, what's going to break down. But when it comes to people, if all you notice as a manager is what's wrong, what's missing, what the breakdown is, you're never acknowledging what's right. And Stephen Covey teaches us that when we take uh, points out of the emotional bank account. We take coins out of the emotional bank account and we never put any coins in the emotional bank account. People feel bankrupt and they feel bankrupt in our relationship. 
So management is relationship. We need to put coins in the emotional bank account and acknowledge people for what they're doing right. Back in the 80s, there was a big video that came out called Fish from the Seattle Pikes Peak. And, and it was all about that. Find people doing something right. I can't say enough. Oh, everything else I said matters. This is boots on the floor impact when you acknowledge people for what's right and you acknowledge them for making a difference for the company. They go home at night feeling like a different human being. And last but not least is on-the-job training. Uh, again, when I started in my work in 1983, I was told there's a phone, there's a phone book, get to work, go get some business. There was no sales training. There was no coaching. It was survival of the fittest. And at the end of the first month, nine out of the 10 people in the training were going to be fired. I wasn't the only one trained that way. There was hundreds of companies back then and maybe hundreds of companies that still do it. And, and that doesn't work for the new age worker. They want to win everything else I said. They want to feel connected to the mission. They want a good future. They want to be excited. They want to be respected. They want to be recognized. Therefore, we need to teach them to win. We need to teach them how to do it right. And then overall, I mentioned it at first, they need to trust the leadership. People need to do what they say they're going to do by when they say they're going to do it, or they need to re-promise or renegotiate the promise. And we need to not assume that our actions are being interpreted by other people because in the absence of communication, people make stuff up. So communication, whatever we think we're communicating, we need to up the ante by five and communicate five times more because all bad behavior begins in a lack of communication. So that's another long answer to how do you have managers drive engagement. Well, thanks. I think that's a very helpful um, list, that approach. Now, you've also said that your approach drives innovation. Can you explain how that works and maybe uh, talk a little about how important innovation is in today's business environment? Yes. So um, we most of us have seen the article in Inc. magazine about the new leader. I think his name is Satish at, at uh, Microsoft. Well, four years ago, the culture at Microsoft was noted to be, I didn't work there, so I don't know, but I know coaches who coached inside the organization, very defensive, um, very doggy dog, everybody working towards their own goals and not working in collaboration. And they put the new CEO in because they said, we want to drive innovation. Innovation, believe it or not, is a trait that comes from feminine energy. It comes out of trust collaboration, engagement, and connection, competition, fighting, winning. Just go right back to the cavemen, women days. Cave women did, did gathering and, and they talked to the people they gathered with, the other women, and they filled up their baskets of berries and they built communities. Well, go back to cavemen. By the way, this is inbred in our brains, this behavior. Cavemen went out and hunted. And they did not hunt in groups. They hunted alone, maybe with their child or something. But it was about going to kill something. Competition is masculine energy. Internal fighting is masculine energy. 
Beating someone else is masculine energy. Winning uh, results. Now, what organizations need to do is they need to mold those energy and say, we want to win. We want results. But you know what? We want to do it through collaboration, through team building, through building people up, through inspiring people. And that's what causes innovation. So if we go back to those seven levels, starts at hopelessness, then fear, then frustration. And we don't have time, but just imagine what happens in those lower level stages. And then the energy line shifts in courage and people take action for something that could be better. And then they get engaged. And during engagement, they're collaborating, they're connecting, they're sharing ideas. They feel safe because they trust their leaders. They trust everybody has the big vision in mind. Then they move into innovation where they're actually trying things they've never tried before with no fear of failure. You see, innovation can't happen if people are in fear of retaliation. And if people are in fear of retaliation because it was a stupid idea or or um, they, get, they gave an idea that was in someone else's wheelhouse, if they're afraid of someone stealing their idea or bashing them for a dumb idea, or that if the idea fails, that they're not going to get a good performance review, they're not going to take risks. And if you want innovation in your company, you need to take, you need to teach people it's cool to take risks. You need to teach people that failing forward is what it's all about. That working as a team for production and engineering and sales and product development, that working as a team to solve problems is how it gets done. So another big uh, important aspect of innovation is to remove those silos. And silos happen because people are operating below the effectiveness line, most likely in frustration or fear uh, for lots of reasons. So I think that's high level answer. All right, well, that's great. Um, now, if we wanted to talk about all of this in terms of performance, what uh, what drives performance success? Well, um, that's a that's a that's a biggie. So let's consider everything we've talked about so far, and uh, people feel inspired, people feel safe, people trust the leaders. the The doing of driving performance is first and foremost aligning the roles each role in the company to the big picture, the mission, the vision, and the values, and the strategic intentions or the organizational objectives or goals. So every role in the company needs to have a linkage to the big picture and performance standards of excellence or whatever it is for your company, performance standards, so people know how they're contributing to the overall organization and we need to give people an opportunity to consciously choose to say yes to those measurements of success and yes to the purpose of that job. So when people feel purposeful in their work, engagement will soar. Next is the leadership needs to connect the dots for people. And by leadership, I mean management, supervisors, executives. They need to connect the dots for people. They need to acknowledge people when they move the ball forward or move the initiative forward, or move the objectives forward. And they need to celebrate 
even the little movement, even the small movement. It needs to be celebrated because human beings are wired. Our brain is wired to listen for the negative. And negative, by the way, is like Velcro and positive is Teflon. So positive feedback rolls off. We don't remember it. But negative gets put in our brain along with everything else we've ever heard negative, And that's what we remember. I don't know why it happens. It's how the brain works. So third, performance success needs to be measured by more than just numbers. It needs to be measured by how we are as a culture. Yeah, we're producing numbers. We are, you know, we're the best. But how are we treating people? We need to have performance measurements that measure both sides of the coin, both the masculine and the feminine, or both the people part and the results part. I heard um, the CHRO of Chief Human Resources Officer of JetBlue speak at a culture conference. And he said that they now measure culture. They measure leadership's engagement with people on a day-to-day basis right alongside with measuring bottom line results. And I think I think that must happen. Leaders must have a portion of their bonus, their output, whatever they're getting as a reward connected to how people feel in the organization, connected to how their people are performing, connected to their 360 scores, connected to their contribution to cultural alignment. Um, strong leaders, I mean, that, that you want to drive performance forward, Teach your leaders to be 21st century leaders, to understand what it means to have empathy, to understand what it means to inspire and engage people, to understand what it means to help a person along, to develop a person, to coach a person, how to hold people accountable without a hammer, but with, with a carrot, how to build vision for people so that we, you know, Order of importance, I did not do that because I think they're all important. Um, People show up inside of the clearing that the leader creates. So if people are disengaged, if people are hostile, we must look at the leader and evaluate how that leader is showing up and what they're creating. And of course, I mentioned accountability, but it, it needs to be mentioned as a separate aspect. People must understand how performance is measured, and then leaders have to hold the bar high. If we allow five people to be mediocre, and we overlook that, but we're holding five others to a much higher standard, that's where we get inequity. That's where we get people feeling there's favoritism or discrimination. And beyond those overt claims, what people are left with on the inside is no matter what I do, I'm not going to be evaluated fairly. And that is a killer of engagement. So accountability, not like you have to, but like people want to because they see a big picture for themselves and they want to do well. So we need to change the paradigm of how accountability is done in organization. And last, tapping into people's values and motivators. When we know what inspires our people, not just like a paycheck or a bonus, But what else inspires them? Some people value learning. Other people are motivated by making a difference. Other people are motivated by creating harmony or others by connection and and connecting to customers or employees. But when we tap into our employees' unique motivators 
and values, and we somehow tie them to their work or the programs they're working on or the big picture of what they're working on. And then we acknowledge them for making a difference in those areas that are important to them, not us. They feel connected. And when they feel connected, they'll move mountains for their managers. That's very helpful. Um, Now, if we turn to retention, what strategies do you recommend for boosting retention? And of course, by that, I mean retention of the employees that you want to maintain. So there's five families of retention. And I actually call them the five families of engagement. Environmental, relationship, support, growth, and compensation. I would say about five years ago was the turning point when most employers got, it isn't just about the money. People will take a pay cut to go to a healthier culture. People will take a pay cut to go to a job that offers them more growth. So we have to really look at those families separately. So environmental is how it feels around here. It's that I have the right equipment that I need. That, you know, it's it's ergonomics is a part of it, but mostly it's about the intangible, how it feels, what the culture's like. Is this is this an environment where there's collaboration and innovation, or is it an environment as we talked about before with silos and infighting and internal competition? Relationship. People don't leave companies, they leave their bosses. What are the relationships like in that organization? Is relationship a high priority? Are people being taught to develop relationships? That's not just relationship, boss and employee, but it's also co-working relationships and relationships with HR and how people talk to each other. And are they looking at me as a human with individual needs or am I just number 279? Support. What are the systems in place to support people getting their work done? Do people have the right tools? Do they have the right training? Do they have meaning on the job training? Do they have the right technology? Are we eliminating red tape? Do we outsource what we don't have capacity for or we don't have competency for and let people do the things they really do well? So support is beyond getting the work done. Support is maybe... Um, help with child care, or some companies bring in the dry cleaner to pick up everybody's dry cleaning so people don't have to take their time after work, or bringing in car, car wash for the day, but something that helps people, supports people have a better quality of life in work and outside of work. Growth, you know, you got 50 million approximately newcomers into the workforce, they want to grow. And I am a baby boomer. I still want to grow. Most people I talk to do want to grow because they see changing a changing world, artificial intelligence, um, data being used for for tons, robotics. They say, if I'm not growing, I'm not going to have a job. So we need to be the kind of cultures and, and work environments that are learning organizations where there's growth as a core value. It's what people want. It's what people need. And we need to be the kind of organizations that do that, even if it means people outgrowing our organization, because if they if we train them up and they outgrow us and they leave happy, they are always going to refer people to us. They're going to tell people how we grew their career. 
this thinking that we can't outgrow people because then they'll be better than we are is really narrow and simple minded thinking. So growth could be personal development. It could be skills training. It could be leadership development. It could be new manager training. It could be career pathing for people and then having this whole university and internal knowledge system built around the career pathing. So people have the experience that the time they spend with your company is not only putting money in their bank account, but it's growing their career like a master's degree would. And then there's comp, compensation, real hardcore money, benefits, bonuses. By the way, beyond the dollar, other forms of compensation are time off for good behavior, Uh, uh, trade time for time, extra time for extra time, not there, or a fun Friday with the the whole organization. Everybody goes and does a volunteer project, but they still get paid. That is a form of comp because if I have to take a day off to do a volunteer work and I get docked for my pay, uh, that doesn't work. So again, I'm talking about in healthy organizations with good accountability. There are some organizations that are putting no limit to time off And there's organizations who've done that that have gotten burned because they put that policy in, but they didn't hold accountability. So people abused it. So again, you have to structure all of your programs around your culture, and then you have to build up the skill level of the leaders so that it all works and it doesn't get discombobulated. So comp uh, could also be profit sharing and bonus based on lots of parameters, not just money, not just results, but how people are treated. So the families of retention are, or in engagement are the biggest categories. Under that or as part of that, creating an ideal culture, a purpose-driven culture. People work and get engaged when they are engaged and inspired in the big picture of what the company is doing. So it's about igniting passion. It's about awakening people's spirit at work. And that's all in service of creating an ideal culture tying the roles to the big picture and having people see it, putting the right people in the right job. You're not going to retain people if you hire people because they said they wanted the job, but they weren't really bought into what the work was or they weren't really bought into the big picture. So you have to begin with the end in mind. We call it conscious hiring. And it is about getting the right people on the bus, as Jim Collins says in Good to Great. And then, of course, I know I'm being redundant, but you ask the question, how do we raise retention? You make sure the leaders are the kind of leaders people will stay and work with. You make sure the leaders are the kind of people that care about the people working for them. Next is meaningful work. This is, again, I've been trailing this thought through the whole conversation. People want to feel good about what, what they're doing, whether they're the janitor or whether the CEO, they need to understand the big picture of what they're doing and why it matters. Again, they need training. They need to be stretched. They need growth. People are smart. They know the jobs that are open today, most of them will be, 50% of them will be non-existent in a decade from now. And 50% of the jobs open in a decade from now don't exist today. So if we keep our prefrontal cortex fresh, if we're learning new things, if we stay agile 
as career people, we'll be able to morph into whatever we need to morph into and learn what we need to learn so we can stay competitive and stay in the job market. And if you remember back just about 30 years, 20 years, when things changed last time in a major way, a lot of people became unemployable. And a lot of those people said, I don't want to learn. I don't want to learn what the new technology is. I'm happy the way I am. And they had, you know, they left the workforce and they've done other things and left the business world. Well, the new generation isn't going to do that. They're, they're, they know they must be lifelong learners. And then giving people an opportunity to go take care of family business during work. If I'm a hard worker, I'm hitting all my measures. I'm a great leader or not leader, but a great employee. And my parents need help because I have to put them into a nursing home or my kids need help with their kids. Whatever is happening at the generation that I'm in and the kind of parents and relationships I have, or I have a new baby and something's going on. I don't want to feel that I'm going to have punitive damage because I chose family one morning or one afternoon over work. I want to feel that I can have it all, that I can have both, that I can give my heart and soul to my company, and I don't have to put my family or my my personal life aside. And that's something that has been changing and needs to change. And this is even companies allowing people remote work. Or, you know what, instead of commuting for two and a half hours to get to work, work out of your house three days a week. We trust you. We know you're going to produce the results because you have a track record with us and we want you to be happy. We don't want you wasting time in, in your car, burning up gas, expanding the carbon footprint. All of that goes into career life navigation. <clears throat> and then flexibility and agility, giving people an opportunity instead of saying you can't get promoted for two years because we have a two-year minimum uh, saying, you know what, you're qualified for that job. We do have a two-year minimum, but we're going to make an exception because of your performance, of your qualifications, or we're going to get rid of that two-year minimum and we're going to promote people on meritocracy. So it's taking away these old policies and putting in programs that drive engagement, drive collaboration, and drive unification to the mission and vision. And we remove those old human systems, those punitive human systems, those systems that keep people down and put like an anvil on their head. But you have to wait two years. You can't do this. You can't do this. If people feel entrapped, they won't stay. I like the drip in the bucket uh, system. So in the introduction, I mentioned that you've developed a talent strategy system and I, I suspect we've covered most or many of the uh, elements already. But is there anything further you want to tell us about uh, your strategy system? Yeah, um, I, have a, I have a brief story um, of a company that we worked with. The labor relations manager contacted us along with the general manager, brand new general manager, about two years ago. And when he started, he wanted to make a name for himself. So he he went in and he did things without talking to her, like he mandated no more overtime in a heavy manufacturing environment where people were counting on overtime. And he did three or four things like that. And in the course of his first six months, he built enemies. And it got to the point where the culture there was so broken that they called us up and they said, we need help. 
and the labor relations manager had a vision and her vision was that people would be excited to work there and not just working there because they were only one of three employers in that small rural town. And so two years later, um, we completed our project with them and their leadership skills grew. Everybody across the board improved by 25%. Now you might say, well, they should have improved by 100%, but growth is a slow game and behavioral modification is a slow game. So across the board, they got better at innovation, at inspiration, at accountability, at being responsible for their personal behavior. They got better at creating vision. They got better at aligning their job descriptions. They got better at breaking down those old human systems that had people feel that they were being shamed or blamed or punitive HR policies. And how we did that is through the following set of bullets. And I'm just going to give you a high level. One, culture setting. What's the ideal culture you want? And then building a roadmap and a two-year process to get there. Some companies take two years. Some companies take five years. Depends on how big you are and it depends on how broken it is. Next is talent strategy. What's the right strategy for where we're located, for what we need, for where our industry is, for what our competition for talent is? And then from that, what's our employment brand? And from the talent strategy and the employment brand, then how are we going to hire so that we bring the right people into the right roles for the right reason so we can have high engagement and high retention? And then role alignment. How is every role aligned to the big picture and how is performance measured? And are those performance measured measures linked up to our overall organizational goals? Next is how we onboard people. Do we onboard them not just for what their job is, but for what our culture is and what behavior is expected here and how people are, are required to uh, get along and work together in service of the big picture and in service of the culture that we're building? So many companies lose that piece. They onboard for the job and they forget about the big systems thinking, the big picture. Next is management training and people readiness. The people leading people need to know the difference between punitive and inspirational. And nobody wants to work in a punitive environment. That's World War II management style, command and control, and it doesn't work. And it doesn't work and it doesn't work. What does work is people being motivated and inspired and engaged. And there, and even there's, there's statistics everywhere how that raises performance. So teaching managers how to do that. Next is, is really elevating the systems thinking, the ability for production to get in the world of customer success, for customer success to get in the world of software development, for software development to get in the world of HR, having the leaders of those organizations and even the folks working in those departments understanding how it all works together. Intra-department and inter-department collaboration is critical. And, and we call it systems thinking because when you make a decision at one end of the, te- of the caterpillar, the other end of the caterpillar can't be impacted and blow up. So the systems thinking is that all of it's working together. And when we make a decision on one end, we understand the systemic impacts 
to the people, to the work that has to get done, and to the overall health of the organization. Collaboration. We might think, well, it's easy to collaborate, but not if you don't know how or not if you don't feel safe. So teaching people through experiential exercises how to raise their systems thinking, how to raise their ability to collaborate, problem solve, innovate as a team. Then then doing an inventory of the jobs that are most important to the company and where's the breakdown between quality, delivery, customer experience, and production. What's missing? Where do people need to be trained? Where are the holes? Where are the gaps? And then putting systems in place to improve that. Goal setting. Having everyone in the organization understand the power of working from a compass, the power of working from a true north. Where am I going? Why am I doing this? What's important to me? So if I'm if I'm on the production line or I'm a software developer, my goals might be very different from the VP of HR <clears throat> or the controller or the CEO, but we all are operating in service of our own personal goals and the company goals so that we are a purposeful, purpose-driven organization and people understand what it is to be personally responsible to accomplish our goals. If we're people that are operating in alignment, that's why I named my company Keen Alignment, people are operating in alignment with their true north and in alignment with the compass of the organization and the direction of the organization People will be more productive. People will be happier and they will feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves and in service of themselves. So goal setting at every level, team meetings, department meetings and cross-functional team meetings. So people understand that we're not silos. We are one company and we work together in service of the big picture. Accountability check-ins. Where are we at with our goals? Monthly check-ins. Are we red light, green light, yellow light? <clears throat> are we accomplishing 100% of what we said we would? Or <clears throat> are we accomplishing 20% of what we said we would? And if we're accomplishing 20%, what's the coaching needed? What's the development needed? Where do we need to remove constraints that are in our way of accomplishing our goals? So you can hear it turns into a very proactive conversation about moving things forward versus a reactive, this isn't working, that's not working, Joe's the problem, Mary's the problem, we're working together in service of moving forward. Having a communication strategy, whether it's using apps, whether it's uh, salient points, whether it's town hall meetings, having a communication strategy that is linked to two things, the mission, vision, and values, and the employment brand. Because if we are not talking the talk, Or if we're talking the talk and not walking the walk, it leads to mistrust. So we need everything lined up and congruent so it's unified messaging in service of the same end game. So communication strategy is important. Managers doing one-on-ones. There is no replacement for personal connectivity to the people who work with you. So one-on-ones, whether they're 15 minutes a week, a half an hour a week, an hour a month, people need to feel connected to the person there that is their manager. They need to feel the manager has their best interest. And saying you do, but not spending time with people is not walking the walk and it impedes trust. 
So formal one-on-ones, that's all part of what we implement in companies, even right down to a script for how to have a one-on-one and an agenda for how to have a one-on-one. And then allowing the people in the organization to come up with a list of initiatives that need to be implemented to improve engagement and improve culture and coming up with these ideas, not from HR's office or production's office or operations office, coming up with these ideas from the people who will be most affected. So creating task force or work teams that attack and improve these problems in the organization and then measuring that success. There's an organization out there called WorkXO that actually measures the success of the initiatives to drive culture forward. And then quarterly work days. So when we go into an organization, I told you that we did the level set with the leaders. We also do a level set with the employees so they can really come to ground level. Who am I? What's my purpose in life? How does that purpose connect to my purpose for being here in this job? And how can I get my needs met through this job? And then working with people over time on a quarterly basis to continue to drive their personal development forward in terms of responding to upsets, disappointments, or breakdowns, in terms of being responsible for the impact that they're causing, in terms of learning to renegotiate when they can't meet a deadline and to renegotiate with integrity, in terms of taking uh, taking responsibility for what's working and not working and how to do it in a way that doesn't drive blame and shame, but that drives accountability and um, growth. And so I think it's important that organizations continue with the work with the people while they're working on the human system overall. Because when you lose sight of one over the other, it starts to break down and fall apart. Eventually, the organizations do it without us, but we teach them everything Keen does. And I think there's other organizations, obviously, like ours, but think everything we do We have a mechanism for companies to take our training and our knowledge and our programs and bring them inside so that they're not dependent on us forever. So there's this whole piece when you're doing culture change or employee engagement intervention, there's an intervention piece that immediately diagnoses the problem and then sets the stage to fix it and then goes in and starts working with the company to fix it, kind of like the Intel inside. And then there's this outer rim that allows them to take it on themselves and the people at the company get trained. It's a train-the-trainer program. And then they take that out to the rest of the organization. So I think that covers it. Yeah, well, that's a wonderful uh, list. And I also appreciated the uh, story about your client. I think that's very encouraging to anyone working on improving uh, their organizations. So to sum this all up, any final recommendations for HR managers as we uh, move into 2018? Yes, there's two. First, uh, apply what you've heard here today for yourself. What's your true north? What's your compass? Where are you going? What do you want to accomplish? And if you really want to accomplish employee engagement and a culture, an organization that has a healthy culture, it begins with having conversations with the CEO about what you see that could improve if culture improved 
what you, how you see engagement would be stronger and therefore performance. By the way, Tiffany, the labor relations manager from two years ago is now the chief talent officer of her company. Sales have raised by five points. Operational cost has decreased by two points. If you can put measures to what you want to do, it will elevate your career and the C-suite will listen. And there's, there's data all over. I have it. It's on the internet of how the company does better from a performance standpoint when people feel better. So the first thing is knowing where you want to go. The second thing is engaging with your C-suite. The third is speaking about it in terms of business results. They will not listen to people want to feel better here. We're not at that stage yet. We're about 10, 10 years away from that. They need to know how it's going to impact their business results. And then fourth, you have to be willing to stand in the fire. So developing your own self-confidence, your own self-esteem, your own ability to own your voice, your own ability to intervene when when the going gets tough in doing a cultural implementation or an employee engagement program, you have to be willing to stand in the fire and stand on your, your beliefs because they will push back when the going gets tough. When some manager who has a lot of power in the organization or some executive is screaming at people, which is still happening and needs to stop, or is taking credit and people are upset and they give bad 360 reviews, and that person is trying to tank the program to defend themselves and insulate themselves from a possible consequence. You have to be willing to stand in the fire unemotional and stand up for what you believe in. You will eventually be heard, but you can't give up. It's probably my biggest learning in life doing this kind of work. I can't give up on people or on the program when my feelings are hurt. And so I think those are the parting words. Maji, that's great. Thank you so much for joining us today and providing all these very helpful insights. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Listeners, I'll just remind you that Maji will be a featured presenter about teamwork March 9th in Savannah at the HRDA 2018 conference. For your discount, go to blr.com slash hr18 and use the discount code WORKS100 for your discount. It's blr.com slash hr18 and WORKS100, and that's all caps, W-O-R-K-S-1-0-0. As always, please let me know what HR Works should cover next. S. Bruce at blr.com. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Bruce for HR Works.